Welcome to the Healthcare Real Estate Advisor Podcast. I'm Andrew Dick, an attorney with Hall Render, the largest healthcare-focused law firm in the country. Today, we will be speaking with Rich Anderson, a managing director and senior REIT analyst with SMBC Nico Securities. Rich has been covering equity REITs for many years and is a well-known name in the business. Over the years, he's focused on a number of different REIT sectors, including healthcare REITs. A number of our listeners are REIT investors or work in the healthcare REIT industry, and I thought it'd be interesting to get Rich's perspective on equity REITs in general, along with healthcare REITs. Rich, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Rich, before we talk about uh, your role at SMBC, let's talk about your background. Tell us where you're from, where you went to school, and uh, what you aspired to be. <laughs> okay, so yes, I'm uh, uh, I'm from this, the great state of New Jersey, so uh, Jersey boy through and through. Bruce Springsteen fan, perhaps, uh, and uh, went to school at the University of Maryland. Not perhaps, by the way, definitely a Bruce Springsteen fan. Um, went to school at the University of Maryland and studied uh, aerospace engineering. <clears throat> so uh, not quite a real estate uh, background, at least from an education perspective, uh, but uh, happy to report to you that you standing before you is, is a rocket scientist. And so, uh, as I always say, you're welcome. Uh, and then for about six years or so, I worked as an uh, aerospace engineer for a, a, a government contractor, uh, also in New Jersey, by the way, in South Jersey, supporting the FAA Technical Center, um, and did that for, as I said, six years. In the in the meantime, was getting my MBA at night uh, at a small school in Jersey called Monmouth University uh, in finance, and made the uh, the trip to to Wall Street. It all made sense at that point. This was the mid '90s, uh, and I uh, worked for a an aerospace defense analyst. And so I figured I had the business degree and and the practical experience in in uh, engineering, aerospace engineering, and that this would be my career. And uh, but at at some point uh, early on, I took note of the REIT industry, which uh, the, the, mo- the REIT model has been around since the early '60s. But as an as a trading uh, industry, it really didn't get started at what we call the modern day era of the REITs until the late '80s, early '90s. And so the the real estate team was physically sitting next to us, and I inquired about an, a job opening. And and lo and behold, I, I moved over there in 1996 and started my career covering the REITs. And have been doing it uh, ever since. So you know, 25 years in now, straight on through uh, as a read analyst, um, and here I am with you today, as a result of all that. Great. Well, Rich, talk about the sectors um, you've covered and what you're actually covering today. Sure. So over my career, uh, I've pretty much covered every asset class. That, that make up the U.S. REIT uh, industry, maybe about 150 different REITs. So they're all sorts of walks of life in, in, in real estate, as you know, and, and all of them sort of behave differently from one another. The fact that I'm a REIT analyst is one thing, but I, I truly believe we cover many different industries because malls bear very little resemblance to data centers, of course, and so on. Um, so that is, you know, my history is, is, is quite, you know, a wide net in terms of the properties that I've covered. Today, I cover, as you mentioned, the healthcare uh, REIT space, but I also cover the industrial REITs, which are, you know, known for their Amazon exposure and the logistics of e-commerce and all that, 
all that that's going on. The office industry, which is interesting today because of all the work from home and whether or not that's going to have an impact on things. The multifamily industry, uh, which should benefit from work from home, I guess, if you think of it that way. Uh, but I've been covering the multifamily sector for quite a long time and most recently picked up coverage of a relatively new REIT asset class, and that's the gaming sector. And there are three REITs that make up that space that obviously own uh, casinos around the country. Uh, and then finally, um, there's the one and only ground lease REIT, uh, Safehold. And I, uh, one of a few analysts that cover that one, uh, I find it very interesting. It's, as I said, no other company really does ground lease investing, uh, specifically as, as Safehold does. And it's been a very interesting story out of the gate coming public in 2017 and really having a breakout year last year as they, uh, sort of market their product to the, the real estate community. Yep. And I, I, as we talked about before, SAFE is a very interesting REIT. Um, we, we, we monitor it primarily because a number of our hospital clients frequently use the ground lease structures when they lease part of their campuses to uh, medical office building um, owners and investors. So, yep, very interesting model. Um, Rich, for our listeners that aren't familiar with what um, – a REIT analyst does and and the type of information that they publish. Talk about the ratings process, um, how that works, and the different designations. So buy, sell, hold. And you said that your your company has its own terminology. Right. Our, our terminology, the equivalent of buy, sell, hold would be outperform, uh, underperform, and neutral. So it's just a different word, same 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 logic. Um, as an analyst, my job is to be as smart as I possibly can about the real commercial real estate industry and all its walks of life. And so what I love about being a, a real estate analyst is there's really no, um, there's no script, you know, whatever it takes for you to be smart ab about the industry, you, you are willing within reason, uh, you're, or you're, you're allowed to do. And, uh, so that means property tours. That means, staying in touch with what's going on around the country, whether it's specific to real estate or the, the forces that create value in real estate. I always sit, I always feel like I'm a generalist uh, when I think of the Midwest and manufacturing and, and technology in, in the Bay Area and financial services in New York and Boston. And so these are all the, the forces of nature that create value in the, in the bottom line, bricks and mortar execution of, of the, of the REIT industry. So, staying smart on the space and then drilling down into individual property sectors and then to individual companies. So when I'm, when I'm producing my ratings that I try to keep as balanced as possible and keep and always testing myself, whether a rating change is warranted or what have you, um, I'm comparing against the S and P 500 uh, because we do have generalist investors that invest in REITs. And so there, that, that would be perhaps their benchmark. And then I'm comparing, an individual REIT against the REIT industry. So just that specific element of the, of the, of the comparison because of the REIT dedicated investor community, really it has to be in that space. So there's more, there's a sort of a more, a finer line in terms of speak, thinking about, um, about ratings. And then within individual property sectors, what do I think, you know, of the management teams relative to their most comparable peers, 
What do I think about balance sheets? What do I think about geographies in, in the, for whatever reason, what's going on around the country? How is that affecting this real estate portfolio? Whether it's in the urban core, whether it's in the suburbs or rural areas, how is, as I mentioned, work from home is as an example. How is that going to affect office? How is e-commerce going to affect industrial? How is COVID-19 going to affect the healthcare industry long term? So there's many, many ways to, 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 you know, peel back the onion here. And it quite frankly makes my job very interesting because there's no, there's nothing very mechanical about it. You can be very creative in the process. And I think you get rewarded for that creativity by, by applying whatever it is that you think is necessary to be smart and to think about your constituents and who's reading your real, your research and what matters to them. So I try to lump that all together and appeal to the masses as much as I can understanding that everybody has a different role from one another that is uh, that is talking to me and or reading my research research reports so rich two follow-up questions um how do you decide which companies and sectors to cover and then who is using your 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 information that you publish on your ratings right so i, I think the 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 sectors and the companies that I cover is, is, is my decision. Um, and what I think I can, where I think I can create value to my end users of my, my, uh, research. And so, um, exactly how I come up with those decisions perhaps requires another podcast. Uh, but, uh, but suffice it to say, I, I am thinking about where can I make the biggest difference and where, where do I have a, maybe the brightest ideas that I could share that I think are differentiated from my competition that does the same thing that I do? And so, for example, I don't cover the malls right now. You know, the mall business has been tough. Uh, I don't know exactly how I would create incremental value there where I think I can create value. And I know we're going to talk about healthcare in that space or multifamily where I've been covering it for a very, very long time. And so, so that's, that's the thought process of kind of a vague answer, but the answer nonetheless, my end user is, is the portfolio managers uh, and anybody for that matter that invests in, in REITs. So that could be the Fidelities and Wellingtons of the world. That could be pension funds. That could be insurance companies. That could be endowments. Anybody who is investing money might ask to read my research and hopefully compensate us for that. And, and so that's, that's how it works. Of course, the companies that I cover are interested in what I'm having to say about them, but that's the other side of the house. That's the investment banking side of the house. And I, and I have to have as for legal reasons, have to have my blinders on about conflicts of interest and all those things. I really have to be thinking about my end user and if I have a sell rating on a stock and my firm has a relationship with them on the other side of the house, I can absolutely not pay any attention to that. And of course I don't. Uh, and it's a very important um, line in the sand that I must never cross the, the so-called Chinese wall. Very interesting. So, so Rich, let's move into the healthcare uh, REIT space. Talk about uh, the different, what I call subsectors. Healthcare REITs have been around for for a long time, there there are a number of different REITs that that fall under the healthcare REIT category. How do you break down the sector? Yeah, 
Um, so the, the interesting thing about the healthcare REIT space is it is a collection of different asset classes. Whereas most property sectors, at least the way the U.S. REITs are structured, are focused in their asset class. You don't have a whole lot of diversity in the multifamily sector, the office sector, or the industrial sector. That's their, that's their corner of the sandbox, and they play it well. In the healthcare REIT space, you don't have that advantage because there's different types of healthcare real estate. There's life science. There's medical office, there's senior housing, which itself can be broken down between assisted living and senior and, and, and uh, independent living. There's skilled nursing. And of course, there's hospitals, um, uh, rehab, rehab, rehab facilities and, and so on. There's many, many derivatives of healthcare real estate. And so what I described earlier about how I kind of go about thinking about asset classes, I, I do that in a microcosm sort of way when I cover the healthcare REIT space. And so when if, if I were to pecking order the, the different asset types within healthcare real estate, I would start with life science. Life science is obviously a, a solution to the COVID-19 problem. All the tenancy of those assets are working around the clock to try to find therapies and work on testing and, of course, God willing, a, a vaccine. Um, and so there is some great public relations potential there. We all want to see an end to this, but there's also a lot of activity going on within the four walls of a life science facility. And so that asset class, one, one of the larger names in that, in that business, of course, is Alexandria Real Estate, which is pr primarily a, a pure play life science REIT, um, has outperformed in, in 2020 uh, sub substantially. So because of so much activity going on, uh, unlike, for example, the malls where people were told to leave and can't, and by the way, can't go to a mall uh, or can't go to a, you know, whatever facility that where there's a lot of crowd gathering. The, the, the 180, 180 degree opposite uh, conversation is happening in life science facilities. And so uh, I would put them at, as a solution. And then you have medical office, which is not quite so much of a solution to the story, but is working alongside hospitals and, and opening up beds to care for people. And so there's a lot of activity still in medical office. You are seeing um, elective surgeries uh, being uh, stopped in, in this environment. So a little bit of a, a hiccup in terms of the operating business of a medical office facility, but nonetheless uh, still a part of the solution in that sector, which has quite a bit of cash flow visibility. Um, relative to other property types has also outperformed so far in, in 2020. Um, and, and both of these have been our calls, by the way, going in, speaking about, you know, how we think about broadly about covering the real estate space. And then the next level is, is skilled nursing. Skilled nursing, obviously a lot of, um, terrible things happening in, in some assets uh, with very vulnerable uh, older folks catching uh, the, the virus and unfortunately passing away in some cases. Uh, and so you would think as, as an asset class, would you want to invest in that in this environment? And the answer for me is maybe yes. And the reason I say that is because skilled nursing, like hospitals, has access to the various government stimulus programs. And so they are able to fund themselves uh, and support their themselves financially, which in turn is is a good thing if you're the landlord, aka the REIT, collecting rent from these operators. And so, in in a in a perverse way, I guess you know, as a capitalist, you know, this this asset class, skilled nursing, 
actually works okay in this environment. It's certainly not great uh, for all the you know the, the reasons we could talk about for quite a long time, but at least they're you'll be able to, to meet the rent obligations. And then finally, senior housing, which will be a great asset class over the long term for, for maybe reasons we'll discuss later in this conversation. But for the time being, they too take care of old folks, but they don't have access to the stimulus programs. It's mostly a private pay um, option. And so occupancies has been ticking down quite substantially. And with that, their ability to pay rent or keep just, uh, uh, you know, their operations above water in this environment. They do not have the, the benefit of the stimulus programs that skilled nursing does. So in the present tense, I'm, I'm somewhat worried about senior housing. Longer term, with, you know, demand coming as the aging of the population, you know, manifests itself in that business over the long, over the next 15 or 20 years could be a fantastic opportunity. But for the here and now, it's a little bit tougher, a lot tougher. So Rich, that was a, that was a great overview. I've, I've two follow-ups. So in terms of other categories, you talked a little bit about hospitals. When we think of REITs that, that play in that space, there are a number, but there's, there's one that's really a, what I consider more of a pure play hospital REIT that's medical properties trust. How are they doing? Well, first of all, I want to say that they, 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 I don't cover medical MPW. So I want to be a little bit careful um, about, about, talking too much about MPW. Um, but let me just, maybe I could speak generally. I think that it's perhaps the same rules apply in hospitals as they do in, in skilled nursing with the, with the one exception being, um, we, we are probably over hospitaled if that's a word over hospitaled in the United States. Um, and perhaps something that might come out of this is a, a retrenchment of the hospital industry longer term. So I'm, I am a little worried about that in the sense that you could have some consolidation. You could have some, you know, low market share, rural hospitals closing and, and you know, kind of redirecting patients to another hospital in the area that has better market share, better, you know, um, you know, systems and so on. Um so I guess I'm just a little worried uh, longer term about the hospital industry, more so than I am in the skilled nursing space. Um, the hospital industry is dealing with COVID-19, which is not really a profit center, right? So you you might come out of this a little bit weaker in the hospital space than, than what you might, what I might suggest with the skilled nursing space. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you know, for the time being, it is, it is being supported as, as as I suggested with skilled nursing, and one other thing I would say, importantly, we we have long thought of government regulation for hospitals and skilled nursing as to be a quote unquote liability for those two asset classes, um, because you have a tough time predicting what what Medicare is going to do every year, what the fifty states in terms of Medicaid are going to decide. And we've had some surprises to the downside in the past that has have derailed that business because it's so much relies on government reimbursement uh, to, to, you know, to run. Um, and, but now you would think that the, the government and the state, the state and federal government are unlikely to do anything that is perceived to be taking money away from that industry. So uh, the, the counter to my comment about hospitals long term is the government is probably an asset now because uh, it, it is unlikely to take money away from these heroes that have you know been on the front line doing all this for all of for all the people that are suffering from this disease. So you know a lot of things to think about uh, hospitals 
and, and, and the healthcare real estate space in general. But, um, but uh, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting at the, on the other side of this for sure. Well, let me, let me bounce around a little bit in some of the different sectors. Uh, one, I don't know that it's really a sector, but the, at least the way I think of uh, a couple of the big healthcare REITs, Ventas, Welltower, HealthPeak, I, I think of those as the big three. I kind of think of them as diver- diversified sure. healthcare REITs. What are your thoughts about those big players in the industry? We've seen some div- dividend yeah. cuts. Uh, some of them have exposure to senior housing. What are your thoughts on how they're performing today? So all three are fantastic organizations and they, they're fan in the fat, very fact that they've been consolidators and grown to the size that they've become is evidence of, of, of the quality of these organizations. Um, now they've, they have certainly had their difficulties and some headwinds as of late, because as you mentioned, they have exposure to senior housing, but taking that matter even a step further, they have exposure to operating senior housing. So very often we talk about triple net leases and in the triple net structure, the operator is simply paying a rent to the REIT and it's very much a passive investment from the REIT's perspective. But in in 2007, uh, laws were passed to allow for the for the ownership and operations of healthcare real estate, namely senior housing facilities. And that was a that was a, a, a sea change in terms of how the REITs uh, acted and, and played in the senior housing space. And so now, fast forward to today, Welltower, about 50, 45 percent of its portfolio, its total portfolio is operating senior housing facilities. So not triple net, but literally the operations on their balance sheet. Ventas, about 35% of their portfolio is senior housing operating facilities. So they've taken that law and run with it. And uh, they've done it because there has been growth over the years. Um, But, you know, it's come back to bite them in this environment because they now are get feeling the hit directly from occupancy loss in that space. Peak, Health Peak is the third of the big three, as you described them, which is what we all describe them as. And they uh, have performed relatively better than Ventas and Welltower. And I think that's because their exposure to senior housing operating is significantly lower. So they primarily, they play in senior housing, but they have a fair amount of triple net. They do have senior housing operating, less than 20% of the portfolio. And, but they play big in life science. So they're another life science player. So they're benefiting from that. And they're big in medical office. So too is Ventas and Welltower. But the, the, the lion's share of the peak story is life science and medical office. And that's why they've been a better performer. And to that end, my, my ratings on those three are outperformed for peak and neutral for Welltower and Ventas. Yeah, it's interesting. I I think of uh, those three the same way. And I assume the law that you were mentioning is like what we call in the industry, the RIDEA type structure where the REITs can can be involved in the management and operations. Well, to, 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 to be clear, not the management. So they the, the physical management of the assets has to be run by a third party. So what happens is the REIT owns all the business, but part of their cost structure is to pay a management fee to somebody who's physically bathing and feeding people because that wouldn't be considered a real estate you know, activity. So they're still separate a little bit. They're, they're actually structured a lot like hotels where they have to, they pay a, a fee to a flag like a Marriott or, or, or a 
Hilton or so on. And that's how the, the healthcare re model is set up when they do do a RIDEA structure. So they're getting a piece of the operating income though, through that structure. Most of it actually. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, the other, the other point you made, which I thought was a good one was about peak. Um, the fact that it has, um, more life sciences assets compared to the other two. And it seems to be really working on a number of new development projects in the life sciences space as well, which I find exciting. Uh, And so um, for a while, uh, Peak, I think was, I think it went through a rebranding. Sure. And uh, uh, and now it seems to be really um, coming into its own and and doing well. So uh, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I like the fact that it's got the life sciences exposure more so than the other two. Yeah, that's an interesting company. I, I, I the the management team there has come together over the past five years, led by Tom Herzog, who I know very well and for a long time. He actually cut his teeth in the REIT space in the multifamily sector, but he's a he's a very smart guy, and he's he's built a team of very smart people around him, uh, and and in doing that. Uh, restructuring a legacy company into what it is today. They've really done a fantastic job there. Uh, going back to MOBs and, and some of the pure play MOB REITs, uh, I, I think you cover HTA, Healthcare Trust of America, and then uh, Healthcare Realty Trust. Is that right, Rich? That's correct. Yep. So uh, I really like both those companies um, seem to be doing well is there any concern that there's been so much demand for MOB assets that it's it's becoming harder to find good product um, at, at a good price to make a good return for those players? You know, it's always a problem, right? The, the particularly in normal times, the it's it in low interest rate environment, you do have a lot of interest in, in asset classes and particularly medical office that appeals to a wide spectrum of investors because, as I mentioned earlier, it's such a a visible cash flow uh, stream. It's uh, it's almost like an annuity uh, and and appeals very well to you know private uh, p- private equity and a, a lot of different types of potential investors outside of the REIT space. And so yes, uh, competition for that asset class has been fierce over the years, and can, we haven't seen any. Uh, disruption in terms of cap rates on medical office facilities, even in this period of time. Now, we're not seeing a whole lot of transaction activity, but where we have seen it, it's been, um, it, there hasn't been a whole lot of disruption in terms of property value. But that's always a good thing if you're long the sector, which both of those companies are. But if you want to grow it, it becomes challenging. That's always the uh, that's always the difficulty. Um, now, healthcare realty and also HTA, both have uh, a fair amount of development. And so the way you you get a better return is by taking on the incremental risk of development and you get called 150 or 200 basis point return spread over what you'd be able to do as, as an acquisition. Uh, and that's one way to approach growing the portfolio by, by going the development route. Of course, development comes with its own risks. Uh, so that's always a trade-off, but you know, that's that's one way that the two of those companies are managing that issue specifically. Great. Uh, what one question about life sciences, Alexandria in particular? I I know recently uh, they had a share offering raised something like a billion dollars. Yeah, I, I believe. 
which was huge. And then I think, uh, was it Blackstone may have raised a couple billion dollars for one of its life sciences funds. How does a, a publicly traded REIT um, like Alexandria, I mean, there's so much interest in life sciences now, and I know they have deep roots in the industry. How, how do they compete with some of the, the, the private equity players in that space? Uh, well, I, that might be a better question for them because <laughs> I'm sure it's it's a dog eat dog world out there when it comes to uh, a question like that. But Alexandria's cost of capital is quite attractive um, and a fantastic balance sheet. Uh, so I think there's more than enough to go around. Of course, the, the best cost of capital perhaps on the planet is Blackstone. Uh, and, you know, so you, it's a, a double edged sword when they come into the space. They, they took Biomed Private a few years back and, and, and have been um, managing that portfolio ever since. Uh, and so you, you like to have the stamp of approval of a Blackstone in your space, but then you have a, a, a pretty sizable competitor as well. Um, I think what Alexandria comes to the table with is reputation. They, their, their portfolio is spectacular in many respects it's 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 it comes from mostly their development uh business and and so if you if you see an alexandria asset you almost recognize it before you see the the, the name on the door because they just do such a good job and that rep that reputation precedes them they they have you know relationships up and down the board throughout the biopharma industry they themselves can be characterized as a life science company in many respects they they are not real estate people only if you if you meet the management team you will find scientists and phd's that that are very knowledgeable and interface specifically with their tenants and so that's the differential for alexandria they are not just a money machine they are actually in, very in, intellectual when it comes to the underlying business. They 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 host forums with all of their their um, their tenants. They even have a, a VC arm where they're investing into uh, early stage development companies. And so they're they they run the gamut in the life science business. And I think that's a separating um, sort of characteristic for Alexandria when it comes to competition. Great. Uh, switching quickly to senior housing, you mentioned earlier, you, you think the sector, um, will recover over time and may be an attractive investment. Yeah. Um, a couple of, of the long-term care REITs play in that space. Which ones do you like that you cover? Well, so, uh, I have, a, an outperform rating on Sabra. So SBRA, that's about 60% skilled nursing, 40% senior housing right now. So I'm getting my fix, I guess I will say, through Sabra. And I also get I get senior housing exposure with Peak, even though it's smaller than the others. I'm still I'm still getting it that way. Um, the day may come. Uh, obviously, I can't say when or how that I'll I'll, I'll flip more uh, a more of aggressive approach into senior housing. Um, part of the reason for that is it's fairly simple. If you look at a birth chart in the United States, in 1935, births troughed right in the midst of the Great Depression. Uh, so that's 85 years ago. That's about the time people go into a senior housing facility. Said differently, we are actually at a dearth of demand for senior housing at this very moment in time because of what happened 85 years ago. But then if you also look at that birth chart, from that point forward to 
call it 1950 or 1955, birth rates hockey sticked up. I guess people got happy, you know, the Great Depression was over with. And but the it just doesn't take this doesn't take a whole lot of analysis to know that over the next 15 to 20 years, you were going to have people entering those years where they start to uh, consider senior housing facilities, which uh, has a voluntary element to it, particularly in the independent living side where, you know, you want to be you, you want to have a little bit more ease of life. But uh but you don't necessarily need a whole lot of care in terms of being fed or all, or all that kind of stuff. Assisted living has more care element to it, of course. And then memory care, unfortunately, can, can play a role in an assisted living facility as well. But nonetheless, that, that demand sort of profile is coming. Um, and uh, that is – the question is, is it going to be like watching paint dry or is there going to be like a real resurgence of, of activity that is why I said senior housing probably becomes very much more interesting in the aftermath of all this because we can plainly see the demand coming. Rich, do you have any concern that some of the like the independent living facilities, some of those uh, in many states don't have to be licensed? They're private pay, as you mentioned earlier, which is attractive to many investors. But but it it may be a little easier for competitors to enter the market um, for those reasons. Any concerns about? Um, when you compare that to like a hospital or a skilled nursing facility, often those have to have a license, maybe a certificate of need in certain states, which are barriers to entry. Is it is it kind of a double-edged sword because you have the private pay, which is a good thing, but maybe a, more competition potentially in the future? Well, it's been, supply has been the problem up to this point for senior housing and perhaps a, a silver lining, if there ever, if there could ever be one in, in this environment is, is supply getting shut down in the senior housing space but you're right there aren't barriers to entry and so we were worried about just to back up for a couple of seconds we were worried about supply in the multifamily industry when it was running at about two percent of existing stock in senior housing and specifically assisted living it was running five or six percent of existing stock so that's real competition from supply so I mentioned earlier a dearth of demand in the present tense was happening at peak levels of supply. So so senior housing was really getting it from uh, from from a, a couple of different angles. Uh, I, I think again the demand comes back, but but perhaps supply shuts down at least for a period of time, and and the the reads that traffic in that space will have a little bit of a breather from a competition standpoint. But all bets are off longer term because developers see what we just talked about in terms of demand. So you have to be able to balance that and, and know how supply will work itself into the conversation longer term. So your, your point is, is spot on. Uh, you don't have the, the regulatory environment that skilled nursing has uh, from a supply perspective and, and hence uh, you're exposed to supply should that start to turn on again. Uh, Rich, let's switch gears. Let's talk about, the healthcare real estate industry in general. Um, it seems like I've, I've, I've noticed NAREIT put out some reports over the past few weeks on rent collections um, yeah. generally for the healthcare REIT sector and rent collections have been pretty strong compared yeah. to other property sectors. Um, it seems like the healthcare REITs are, are performing reasonably well given what's going on in the world. Um, what are your thoughts about just painting a broad brush here on the, the healthcare REIT industry? 
it, it depends on the asset class, of course. I mentioned the stimulus that's helping the skilled nursing space. Um, I think the operators want to stay current um, in the face of declining occupancy. So there is a, you know, a vested interest to, to maintain one's credit and, and all of that. Um, but there's also the, the realistic side of this. If they simply don't have the money, then uh, I, particularly in the case of, a, of a, a triple net execution, the fortunes of the operator accrue to the REIT. So the REIT has to be careful about bullying too much because you can be aggressive and demand rent payments at their current level. And if they if that disrupts the credit of the of the operator, the REITs in at least in a triple net structure are going to be judged by that, right? They become a proxy of the health of that of that operator. So and you might see rent deferrals coming to, depending on how long this this situation lasts. You might see actual rent cuts, perhaps in exchange for a lease extension. You know, from the REIT perspective, you don't want to just blindly cut rents if you can avoid it. You might want something in return for offering that that um, that uh, assistance. Uh, and so we're seeing things like extension of leases or or, or other what I would quote assets as, as a compromise in that negotiation. But you're right to this point, it hasn't, it, the numbers have borne out to be okay. Uh, even though we've seen occupancy drifting down so much, there, there have been two significant, actually three significant rent, um, excuse me, uh, dividend cuts in the healthcare REIT space, namely Well Tower, Ventas, and Sabra have all cut their rent in this environment. I'm sorry, cut their dividend in this environment, perhaps in, a, in anticipation of seeing rent come down to some degree. Um, any any predictions from management on whether they'll increase the dividends if once things start to to, to get better? Well, I think that that will always be uh, the the uh, attempt. Uh, the, the REITs have been generally great when it comes to dividend policy and managing their capital and 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 doing it wisely. You've generally, seen dividends step up across the REIT industry generally. And, and I think we'll, we'll see more of that. Uh, in this time, this is something none of us have lived through perhaps ever. Uh, I don't know how many of your listeners were around in 1918, but you know, maybe, uh, nonetheless, uh, you know, this is, this is uh, uncharted territories and I think you have to do the right thing. And, and sometimes the right thing is to, is to reset dividends and put yourself in a position to succeed in the future. Um, but you know, an interesting quote, and, and again, not to make light of this, but Rahm Emanuel once said, "Never waste a good crisis," and 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 that is not to be funny at all. But what is what it does mean is maybe this is a time to to look at yourself in the mirror as a as a REIT and and fix things that were perhaps a little broken in the, in in front of this, so that you do emerge from this healthier, and you do have the opportunity, as you suggested to grow the dividend and get back to some level of normalcy. This could be a time to reset rents and, and reset balance sheets and do things necessary to, to be a healthier entity longer term. Rich, uh, switching gears, what advice would you give for someone uh, looking to get into the real estate or the REIT business? Um, you've been doing this for many years. Um, 
what should folks be reading? Who should they be talking to or trade organizations? What, what advice would you give to someone? Well, first, they should be reading my research, of course. But if that doesn't do it for them, which would be unbelievably uh, surprising, just kidding, of course. Um, the the NAREIT, uh, the, the, the REITs have the National Association of Real Estate Investment Trusts, and they have a fantastic website, REIT.com. And you could get a lot of information uh, about the REIT industry there and, and you know, REIT 101 type of uh, information about all the, the language because it can it can ten, send you in a tailspin a little bit. We don't talk about EPS in the REIT industry. We talk about funds from operation or FFO, and 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 you have different tax consequences. You don't pay corporate tax if you pay enough in the way of dividends. And so there's a lot to understand about what a REIT is relative to other other industries and other C corps. Uh, and, and I think that's a good starting point. Uh, you can you can really get a lot of knowledge uh, out of out of NARI. They're they're there in part to teach the world about the the real estate industry. Rich, uh, where can our listeners learn more about you and your research? Well, uh, so I work for SMBC, uh, a very large bank based in Tokyo. It stands for Sumitomo Mitsui Banking Corporation. Uh, and our our broker dealer is uh, the Nico brand. Uh, so SMBC Nico is is my company. Uh, I've worked for various uh, uh, shops along the way, starting way back when at Payne Weber and then Citigroup and uh, uh, Bank of Montreal, Mizuho before this, so another uh, Japanese bank, and then and now at SMBC. Um, and so. Uh, I, I imagine I'm an easy find <laughs> out there on the internet. Uh, I'm probably not going to give out my cell phone right now, but certainly uh, they're they're more than anyone's more than um, uh, willing or more, I should say, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, to field questions and talk to people uh, about the space to the extent there's time. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to, be an advocate for an industry that's been my my career for the past 25 years. Well, Rich, um, thanks for being on the podcast. I enjoyed the discussion very much. Thanks to our audience as well for listening. On your Apple or Android device, please subscribe to the podcast and leave feedback for us. We publish a newsletter called the Healthcare Real Estate Advisor. To be added to the list, please email me at adick at hallrender.com. 